The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Support for this show comes from InterVarsity Press and their new book, Hurting Yet Whole by Luan Huska. Speaking from the author's own experience with chronic pain, this book helps us redefine what it means to find healing and wholeness, even in the midst of ongoing suffering. Learn more about the book and get your copy of Hurting Yet Whole at ivpress.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Sarah Wilson, is the author of 11 cookbooks, as well as the New York Times bestsellers, First, We Make the Beast Beautiful, and I Quit Sugar. A former journalist and editor for Australian Cosmopolitan, Sarah hosted a television show called MasterChef Australia, and founded the largest wellness website in Australia, IQuitSugar.com. She now builds and enables charity projects that engage humans with each other and campaigns on mental health and climate issues. Sarah ranks as one of the top 200 most influential authors in the world. She blogs about philosophy, anxiety, minimalism, toxin-free living, and anti-consumerism at sarahwilson.com. Her new book is This One Wild and Precious Life, The Path Back to Connection in a Fractured World. A review of the book appears in the January-February 2021 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Sarah Wilson, welcome to Essential Conversations. Well, thank you very much for having me all the way from Sydney, Australia. Right, right. Via the internets. That's right. That's how we're, everything's via the internets. It doesn't really matter where we live anymore. Right, right. So your book is really engaging. You have a great writing style. It, it really caught my attention. Well, thank you. It, it also left me with lots of questions to explore with you, but far too many questions than we really have time for in the short conversation. So I'm going to focus on just a couple of things. And the first thing I want to do is get your sense of this fractured world. So at one point in the book early on, you link being fractured to being lonely. So can you talk about that a little bit? Mm, yeah. Well, I set up the book to explain what I call a sort of a collective itch. It's this sense that I feel that much of humanity is feeling at the moment that 
we are not on the right track. We're not living life as we're meant to be living. We're not being the best kind of humans that we, I suppose, expect of ourselves. And that has escalated, I would say, in the last, I mean, 2020 just saw everything escalate to a point where we couldn't ignore it. And then COVID almost put a pause button on it then put a magnifying glass over the whole lot and we were forced to really look at it. So in terms of why we're feeling this way and this sort of fragmentation, it has built up over the last 50, 50 to 100 years and there's a number of factors and I go into them in the book. I think primarily it's the neoliberal mindset that has dominated Western cultures and that is the idea of the supremacy of the individual and individual rights and this idea that we're all sort of isolates competing against each other, us versus them. And it's landed us in a spot where we're really not happy, (laughs) we've destroyed the planet, we are bickering endlessly, we can't quite believe it's happening. And I think in some circles, or at least in the media, and particularly over this year, we've sort of pointed our finger at this notion of loneliness, that somehow loneliness and the lack of community has got a lot to do with it. And that's certainly true to a certain extent. But one thing I grappled with is refining that notion of loneliness, because we're not we're not missing interactions with people. I mean, most of us have too many distracting, never-ending 24-7 interactions with the rest of the world. But what we're really missing is meaningful relationships, meaningful connections with others. And I would say it's not just with others, it's with ourselves. We just don't have a discerning, reflective, gentle, still relationship with ourselves. We don't even have time to think through the moral quandaries we're being bombarded with. And we don't have a spiritual engagement with ourselves. But Also, and this is probably not discussed often enough, but it's really central to a path forward out of this, we're also missing a relationship. We've got a a loneliness with life, with nature, our nature as as a collective. And so we are also lonely from from life. And I think that's at the heart of that itch I refer to and at the heart of why we have lost sight of what life is meant to be about. And so that's essentially what I try to tackle in this book. So that was very clear, I think, very, very well put. I, I like uh, the, the linkage to neoliberalism just so that I'm going to underline what you just said about it, because I think people hear the word liberalism and they think liberal, like progressive. Uh, mm. But neoliberalism is this zero-sum individualism that pits person against person, person against planet. If I'm going to win, you have to lose. I mean, that's sort of how how neoliberalism works. And it just pits all against all in this, I hate the phrase dog eat dog because I love dogs and (laughs) they don't do that necessarily. They're not as selfish as us, no. (laughs) Yeah, no. But but it does does pit us all against one another. Mm. And it makes alliances very difficult. And and that's where the, the fracture comes from. And... You know, later in the book, you, you bring up technology and you, you sort of downplay the notion where people are blaming technology. Oh, it's all Facebook's fault. It's all, you know, cable news. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure things are, are not the same in Australia as they are here. But globally, people say it's all technology's fault. Whereas mm. you, you have a more positive view that, that um, you, you write yeah. rather than talk about what technology strips away from us. 
we should be talking also about what technology enables for us. So how do you see that? Yeah, well, I guess the, the uh, just to clarify, by the way, Australia is in the same boat as the US. Remember, Rupert Murdoch is in fact an Australian <laughs> um, and our papers and our media is controlled by that particular type of journalism. And I should also uh, come clean. I did my cadetship with Rupert Murdoch and uh, worked worked for the organisation for five years as a journalist many years ago. But, yes, um, to your point, um, technology only ever enables. And the more interesting, beautiful question we need to ask here is what are we allowing it to enable? So part of the neoliberal system is, and it's part of our cognitive survival mechanism, is that we need an enemy, an us versus them. And so in a in a situation that's as complex as the world that we find ourselves in, the mo- in at the moment, the fragmentation, the polarisation, the climate crisis, the COVID packet pandemic, um, it's extremely, I mean, to survive with such bad news, um, we need to find an enemy. And so we do. We look for di- different things and hence, you know, the China virus, but also blaming technology. So it's an easy out. We like to do this. And then we, as adults, like to say, that, well, it's the children's addiction to to technology that's the issue. And I pull that apart as well, as you probably know, in the book. So I think technology can do whatever we want it to do. It really depends on where our mindset's at. So that's the opportunity. We need to actually go, well, at the moment, it's enabling a bunch of things that aren't good for us. And predominantly, most technology over the last 30 years has been geared at making life easier and cocooning ourselves from from real life, to be honest. We haven't been inventing cures for cancer. We've been inventing things that essentially distract us from the pain of life, that prevent us from living in any kind of uncertainty. You know, we order a pizza on an app and we can actually, we don't even have to wonder how long it's going to take because we can watch its progress as it follows, you know, the driver through the suburb. We don't have to sit in any unkind, any kind of uncertainty, unknowing. We don't have to delay gratification. And all these things throughout history have actually built up a resilience. They've been almost things that we need to build up our ability to cope when a disaster strikes. So, of course, 2020 was a tough year and we were so ill-equipped because we have fashioned our lives such that we have no cooperation. We've got rid of all the spiritual and and moral arbiters, the umpires, as I call them in my book, that used to sort of just put up boundaries so that we knew right and wrong. We had some basics to live by. We've got rid of all of those from the field. Neoliberalism has, you know, just said, well, the, the individual can work all of that out. We have descended into a world where it's more, more, more. Capitalism has has really run rampant and neoliberalism is the extinction of capitalism of course and then we've developed technology that just cocoons us and so we are totally unresilient totally unprepared for real life and uh, that's the challenge we face so I set up the first third of the book explaining where we're at because I think that when we understand why we are where we're at and bear in mind that we live in a culture where it's all up to the individual remember So if things aren't right, that's your fault. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, you know, get yourself together. That mindset is making us feel guilty. It makes us feel overwhelmed. I believe that if we understand why, that it's a systemic issue 
then we can start to really question what parts of this system do we want to keep applying going forward. Um, Milton Friedman, who is sort of the founder of neoliberalism, ironically, he has this wonderful quote that helps in this situation. He said that a crisis, and if 2020 wasn't a crisis, I don't know what it was, but a crisis will create the, the most change. I'm paraphrasing there, but it depends on the ideas that are lying around at the time. And so that's our challenge. We have an opportunity to shift out of this roadblock with humanity to better ideas. And so let's start talking about these ideas. Let's start pulling apart what actually serves us, what's going to serve us going forward. And then I get into the fun bit. That's when I really get wild with my journey, which is geared at techniques and spiritual mindsets and and habits and really easy and and I think all that's free and readily accessible I don't think there's a single hack or idea that I've got in there that costs money for reconnecting in a meaningful way to life so that we can then save it so Sarah I want to hold some of that off because there's a couple of other things that that you raise just now that you raised just now and that you raised in the book that I want to get to before we get to your life hacks that, yes. that, that are get us out of this or at least help us cope. I just want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, InterVarsity Press, and their new book, Hurting Yet Whole by Leon Huska, for supporting this episode of Essential Conversations. Speaking from the author's own experience with chronic pain, this book helps us redefine what it means to find healing and wholeness even in the midst of ongoing suffering. Learn more about the book and get your copy of Hurting Yet Whole at ivpress.com. I think you're absolutely right that people don't like uncertainty, insecurity, and that we're, I don't know if we're actually, I don't think we are actually removing it from our lives, but we're removing it from our consciousness so that um, we can just deny uncertainty and insecurity. So uh, I know where I live in middle Tennessee, mask wearing is rare for mm-hmm. you know, people. COVID-19 is not really real. There's just this, this denial of reality. And, and even more, I want to talk to you in a second about what you call the elephant in the room. But the spirituality that I think we need is sort of what what Alan Watts called, it's one of the titles of one of his books, The Wisdom of Insecurity. We have to regain what it's like to live without surety, without mm-hmm. certainty. You know, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Ecclesiastes in the Bible. I've written a couple of, three books on it. And the opening line basically is, insecurity upon insecurity or impermanence upon impermanence, all life is impermanent. And then the book is about how do you live without certainty mm, and it's right. it's brilliant book though often translated incorrectly if you want to get the correct translation you have to read my, my <laughs> books. but this is what's needed and this i think is what's really really missing um but putting that aside for a second what we get instead and i'm not blaming you personally or your fellow australians personally but what we get is Rhonda Byrne (laughs) (laughs) and the secret, Secret. which is is Uh, neoliberal spirituality. You're in this by yourself. You can create your own reality. If you want a new car, you think new car and you get new car. And it's completely without any kind, at least as I read the secret, completely without any kind of 
uh, community or collaboration or it's, it's sacrifice. Just about, or sacrifice. It's all just, mm-hmm. it's just about me. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's just a, an extension of neoliberalism into the spiritual world. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Absolutely. And um, I'll take full responsibility as the Australian um, Australian here, although I don't think she took off in Australia until she'd become a big hit in the US. So um, she needed US to create the phenomenon. But absolutely agree. I call it spiritual materialism and it's a sort of a cherry picking of various spiritual traditions that are nice and gentle and cocooning and very self-orientated. And so I have found this here in Australia. I know it's rampant in the US as well. You'll have these sort of spiritual types, yoga instructors, you know, qigong experts who say, oh, I'm not into politics. Oh, gosh, no, you know, and they'll walk around with takeaway coffee cups and they, they're they not involved in any kind of activism or charitable work. And really what that is is they've chosen the bits they want, the stuff that serves them, and they've left out the other half of any spiritual tradition, and that is the being of service. I mean, that is the backbone of just about every spiritual tradition on the planet. It's about being of service, which requires sacrifice to the greater good and to the collective. And you're right, it's neoliberalism that has sort of poisoned, you know, the spiritual traditions. And I get it. I get it that life has got big and hard. And so it's just, you know, more cocooning. That's what we are probably likely to go for, whether it's through technology and distraction or whether it's through, I don't know, sound baths um, in nice candlelit rooms, you know. And and so there's a certain, and the self-care movement has become completely hijacked by this kind of thinking as well, that self-care is the, 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 the point of it all as opposed to a sort of interim measure to ensure you can go off and be of service, which is what the term was initially used for in right. the black activist movement um, in the 19, I think, 60s and 70s. So, yes, it's, it's, it's a real problem and I actually target it in the book, Rami, for a very specific reason because... The spiritualists should be awake to this kind of thing. The spiritualists have had some education and some opening to the broader context of what life is meant to be about. And so I sort of have this rally call. It's like, come on, spiritualists, we need you. We need you to step in to this more of service realm. Yeah, absolutely. I think what we're getting, and then I'll just 
toss this out and then want to move on to the climate issue that you raised. But but we what we get is a oh I guess I don't know if this is a real term I'm coining it narcissistic nihilism. And <laughs> it's, it's just about me and nothing else matters and the only thing that there, there's no right or wrong it's just what what's good for me and that's that's a very dangerous situation to be in. And when you apply that to what you call the elephant in the room, which I understand is, is climate collapse uh, or, or the collapse of the planet because of, of uh, climate disaster, it, it doesn't leave a lot, even though the book is hopeful, and we'll get to that in a sec, it doesn't leave a lot of room for hope. No, it, it, it can feel like a behemoth of a task to switch humanity around to a different way of behaving um, because this does feel very ingrained. But one of the things I try to do in the book is remind us all that firstly, this is not our true nature. You know, it, it, that's why I spend a lot of time on that capitalism chapter to explain that this this is a part of a system. We have been steered into this way of thinking and it doesn't have to be this way. I also point out it's not making us happy. And then I also make a very strong case, or at least this is what I really aim to do, was to actually show that the altruistic way, the giving first, the stepping out into the unknown, going to our edge, all of that actually can be more charming, more enjoyable than the status quo. And that's the that's ultimately what I had to, to realise because, as you say, I went into a pit of despair and hopelessness in the writing of this book because as I absorbed more and more of the information about what we had done to the planet and how slim a chance we have of reversing it, I thought, oh, my goodness, how are we going to do this? And I was walking around and we, of course, had the Australian bushfires. Um, we had a whole range of, you know, different things going on and I was like, Everybody's just walking around as though nothing's changed, nothing's going to happen. I think as David Suzuki said, we are all sitting in the car um, careering towards a brick wall together and we're arguing about where we're going to sit. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing. And I was just looking, I felt like an alien. I saw all these people drinking coffee and takeaway coffee cups and not worrying about recycling and, you know, oh, I'm not interested in politics, you know, and and yet also blaming in every direction, blaming something other than themselves. And, um, yes, I did despair, but then I realised that the solution is actually really quite um, inviting. It's also got the chance of having exponential effect. And that's the thing about humans. We are incredible when we love something. So you, those examples of the mother who lifts the car off her toddler, I mean, she would never have had that strength normally, but when she, she, she loves this child, she can find that strength. And we, there are countless examples throughout human history where we rise to something once we realise how much we love that thing. And I think that's that's what we need to do. We need to remind ourselves of our true nature and we need to remind ourselves of our love for this planet, for this one wild and precious life that we have. So I'm sure our listeners are curious, what steps might they take or changes might they make that could help, you know, get them started on a solution to this problem? What, what kind of tips could you give them? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing is not to be scared off by the idea of doing something small. I worked this idea of start where you are because throughout history, 
studies have shown we only need three and a half percent of any given population to rise in protest or rise in activism um, for change to come about. And then the, the change can be exponential from there. So it only needs to be a small change. So start where you are. In terms of a planetary point of view, you know, doing the right thing, this is very pragmatic and practical. If, you, if you're after those kinds of tips, really eliminate food waste. So you can talk about veganism, vegetarianism, you can discuss wind farms, solar farms. One of the biggest contributors, number three of all contributors to CO2 emissions is food waste. And we, the consumer, wastes more than 50% of the food. So it's not the farmers, it's us. So tackle that um, and that can make a significant difference. I would also say start out small with this low-hanging fruit. Don't be scared off by being very visual with your um, behaviour. Carry a keep cup or, a, you know, one of your non-disposable coffee cups and, and start to be that visual image it's a branding exercise we're going to have to go through here. We have to make it so normal. We've almost got to create a tribe of care. So the more that we can do that in our immediate community, the better. And look, I know the US, you've got the COVID pandemic um, as winter approaches. It's going to get harder. Um, you know, I truly do pray for you all over there. And I think there's opportunities, however, within that framework in terms of any kind of quarantining that you might have to go for, go through. There are wonderful opportunities to use those boundaries to then reach out to the humanity right near you. And studies show it's it's contagious. Kindness is contagious. So any small act will have an impact. Fantastic. You know, we're, we're just about at the end of the show and I'm would like to close out our time together to end this conversation with a short reading from your book. There's a passage at the very end, the last chapter's got number of passages, that I really think speaks to the hope uh, we talked about earlier. So let's just end the show that way with you reading this closing passage. I'm sure the listeners would love to hear your voice articulating this message. I acknowledge the facts. The statistics are stacked against us, and I pay a solemn nod of respect to the spiritual truth that death and species extinction are a part of life, and yet I am wholly and vibrantly motivated to fight for life in the meantime. Not my life, but big life, our life together. That meantime might be a very long time, and so in the meantime, this way I've walked with you here in this book serves as a wild and precious way to live, like really live. Wrestling with the darkness has left me more committed to this path than I could ever have imagined. And with one last beautiful question that guides me in my most personal moments, what is left if we might lose it all? My answer gets more beautiful by the hour. Nature, humanity, and my wildly alive love of it all. Our guest today was Sarah Wilson. Her new book is This One Wild and Precious Life, The Path Back to Connection in a Fractured World. You can learn more about Sarah's work at her website, sarahwilson.com. Sarah, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you for your lovely conversation. It was wonderful. Wonderful. 
Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Support for this show comes from InterVarsity Press and their new book, Hurting Yet Whole, by Luan Huska. Speaking from the author's own experience with chronic pain, this book helps us redefine what it means to find healing and wholeness, even in the midst of ongoing suffering. Learn more about the book and get your copy of Hurting Yet Whole at ivpress.com. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.